what you mean. Trial by fire. (laughs) Trial by fire. Speaking of trials. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Under the Pendulum. I'm Chris. Here with my ghoulish gals is Heather. Hello. And Kate in Los Angeles. Yeah, sorry, I just kind of jumped right in there. You said trials, and I was like, that's it. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I didn't even think of that. I didn't even think of it. I didn't think of it. Much like a trial, you say things Mm -hmm. you didn't even realize you would say, and then, you know, people (laughs) run with it. They run with it. You know, I was talking about things nobody wants to hear about, so you (laughs) did everyone a favor. (laughs) I mean, we care. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that. Appreciate the support. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so actually, this is gonna be. I'm very excited for this one today. Oh, good. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. I kind of struggled with mine, but pulled through. Well, actually, yeah. I mean, one of the stories I'll I'll be talking about. I I had heard in a medieval history class, and like, I I put that on a list for something. I was just like, this is cool as fuck. Yeah. Um. Ooh. You know, find yeah. out something something fun to do. Yeah, so today we'll be putting posthumous trials and executions under the pendulum, which yes. is, it It sounds comical in, in a really macabre way, um, <laughs> but, but you know, it, its implications are, are much darker. You know, it's it's a final humiliation, humiliation and desecration of a dead body. What, yeah. is, what, what does posthumous mean? Uh, posthumous is like after death. After death. death. <laughs> <laughs> Won't it? <laughs> These people didn't, yeah, they did not care. They wanted no. you one way or the other. Get you one way or the other. <laughs> there are examples of punishments being doled out after death. Uh, what comes right to mind for me is when the Roman dictator Sulla had some followers dig up the bones of his enemy Marius from his tomb in 82 BCE, and the bones were basically scattered into the uh, Anio. The Anio, which is a tributary of the Tiber, basically. So it's it's basically the Tiber River. Okay. This is going to be a little different from what we're going to be talking about, but it's got the same implications as, as far as, like, you know, wanting to, like, desecrate the, the body and legacy of, like, an enemy. Yeah, um, you're going to you're gonna get yours. I mean, it's Yeah, it and you, not, you don't care. <laughs> they're not getting away that easy. Just because you're dead doesn't mean you're going to get away with it. Yeah, your family's still going to (laughs) pay. Yeah, and as far as the one with Sulla, um, he never really gives a reason, or we don't really know the exact reasons why he did this. In Dan Carlin's um, uh, Fall of of the Roman Republic series, uh, he points out that we can infer that since Sulla had won the Civil War or the Civil Conflict, and that he hated Marius, like, he just fucking hated him so much. Um, he wanted that God, kind of I revenge. I hate that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he wanted his revenge, and he wanted to wipe him from history. Yeah. You know, so he strips Marius of all the titles and monuments and trophies that he had, you know, accrued. And, you know, this was like his final fuck you to, to this guy. Man, all this talk about stripping and wiping makes me excited. <laughs> 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 oh, you ever, you ever been to that strip club, the White Palace? Wiping Palace? <laughs> the White Palace, yeah. The White Palace. Yeah, it wasn't open for very long. Mm-mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that seems to be the ultimate point of these like posthumous trials and displays that even in death, one cannot escape justice and punishment, or at least from the prosecution's view. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we'll be just telling three stories about famous instances of posthumous trials and executions. Hell yeah. Posthumous kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> My first one's pretty good. Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell. Oliver. Died in 1658. Yeah, I I still actually I um we were studying Cromwell in one of my college courses and I like brought that video or that song up because I was like it's basically a history lesson. It is. (laughs) I know everything about him and I that's it. I love that song. It's my favorite Monty Python song. (laughs) Well, I bet you don't know what happened after Oliver Cromwell died. I don't. Ooh, stripping, stripping and wiping's about to happen. <laughs> uh, so for both of mine, uh, I kind of maybe went a little long. Um, both of mine are really complex and and complicated stories. So I really tried to like water it down. Really Same. just get the bare bones. I would feel like a. I would just feel dirty if I didn't try to give some context. But just just fair Same. warning to everyone. <laughs> It is, I am doing super broad strokes. Um, so, you, so, so you could say that you're stripping it down and then you're you wiping, know, wiping you it. You don't want to wipe it because you don't want to make it dirty. <laughs> Give it a little polish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to be leaving out a lot, a lot, a lot. So just kind of, you know. Same. The, the context yeah. is just for the setup. The more important stuff's the the trials and executions. I think our, our train of thought was the same then as we were doing research because... Yeah, it's it was a rabbit hole, man. I was just like, "Who's this guy? Okay, who's this guy? Who's this guy?" Like, yeah, off like the one dude. In the last one, there's gonna be a lot of names, so and I apologize in advance for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, that's okay. It's fun. It is. It's they're they're very cool stories, though. Get it's ready for some noses and warts. So Oliver Cromwell is a derisive name. Some look at him as the man who challenged the monarchy of England, and some look at him as a butcher who didn't care how many bodies he piled up to achieve his goals. We won't get into any of that today, but if you're interested, um, you know, do some research and kind of form your own opinion. Um, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna touch that today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, I don't know. I, I feel like some Americans might not be familiar with him, though they might have like heard his name mentioned in school. Um, oh god i'd say so i'd say like a hard 70 doesn't know who he is <laughs> 60, so, 70 doesn't know who he is <laughs> so he was elected lord protectorate of the commonwealth in 1653 after the second english civil war and the execution of king charles the first but we have <laughs> and the x came down <laughs> But before we get to this, we have to back up a little. So Cromwell was elected to Parliament in 1628 and was not quiet about his disdain for King Charles, along with uh, many others in the Parliament. And all you really need to know is that King Charles I wanted to rule without a parliamentary body, or at least a parliament that was at his beck and call. Uh, A a total monarchy, basically. Hmm. So to those in Parliament uh, who already didn't like King Charles I, this was going way too far. He was, you know, basically talking about abolishing the parliamentary body. Right. And, you know, some believed that that they should the ones who should be running the country and not a single sovereign king. So a civil war ensues. All right. 
So the first English Civil War began in August of 1642 between the Royalists, who backed King Charles, and the Parliament Parliament Parliamentarian Army. Yep. Ooh. Nice. <laughs> Yay. At this time, Oliver Cromwell was not a widely recognized name, but over the course of the wars, he would rise to prominence as a military leader. Cromwell became a distinguished general fighting in an early conflict, the Battle of Edge Hill and Gainsborough. And he got to a rank of colonel in the Eastern Association Army and then became lieutenant general in the Eastern Association Cavalry. And he was also invaluable in the parliamentary victory at Marston Moor. A lot of fucking titles. Leave it to the British. Yep. Jesus. I'm sure there's plenty of tapestries. At that victory, he earned the name Ironside. Oh. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well. Old Ironside. Why is Can't that? Is that, that because so many people were crying on his shoulder? <laughs> and he and just he didn't care. <laughs> he, well, either he cared too much or too little. That's right. <laughs> so, but you see, like, he's, he's like, rising and rising up into the, uh, you know, the upper echelons of the sure. parliamentarian army. And he was also instrumental in the Battle of Nasby, which was said to effectively end the First Civil War. So when the Second English Civil War began in 1648, Cromwell was back on the battlefield. He ended a royalist uprising in South Wales and destroyed the Scottish army at the Battle of Preston. When Cromwell returned from his campaign in the north, he went back to London and along with 58 others signed the orders for the execution of King Charles I for treason as a tyrant, traitor, murderer, and public enemy. <laughs> so King Charles was beheaded on January 3rd, January 30th, 1649. Cromwell then turned his attention to Ireland and Scotland and fighting battles there as the uh, high commander of the parliamentary military. So now he's like the head honcho of the military. Man, no he's shit. just turning slowly into me medieval like George Car Char Carlin. George, George Clinton. George, George Clinton <laughs> in my head. It was just like, George Carlin, what? I know, I'm tired. <laughs> you just talked about how being old sucks. Yeah. Um. <laughs> you really came, so, became a curmudgeon. <clears throat> you really did. So in 1651, Cromwell united England, Scotland, and Ireland into the Commonwealth after his victories in Scotland and Ireland. So at the end of 1653, Cromwell was appointed Lord Protectorate, uh, sorry, Lord Protector, the Administrator of Government, and the Chief Magistrate of the Commonwealth. Damn, that's a long title. <laughs> Could you say it one more time just for good, for good faith here? Lord Protector, the Administrator of Government, of Government, and the Chief Magistrate of the Commonwealth. Yeah. And they actually tried to offer him the crown, which he denied, which is just weird because they just fought a whole fucking war about, like, not wanting oh, monarchy. Fighting's too fun, you know? It just, Can't yeah. sit on a throne and fight. <laughs> is this is this strangely like a, a, like Napoleon at all? Um, In some ways? Oh, no, uh, no, no, no. It's, um, no, he seemed to have been pretty on message most of the time. Like, didn't want a monarchy, wanted parliament to carry on, you know, right. as far as I know, um, you know, I, I don't know a lot of details about this, but, um, in a broad stroke, as far as I know, that's, he's been pretty much on message. Family ties. Family ties. 
<laughs> it's all about family. Family. <laughs> so he served as Lord Protector for five years and died on September 3rd, 1658, from a urinary infection. His body That's was in- a bitch, man. Oh, I know, oh, yeah. No. Well, they say, like, kidney problems, um... Yeah. Or a urinary infection, or, or you know, it could have been both, too. Well, that's the thing, is it's so have... painful. Yeah, Heather went to the hospital because of her, yeah. Yeah, I had a urinary we... infection that uh, backed up into my kidneys, and oh, they said... God damn. It could have killed me, because I wasn't able to even keep, like, a tablespoon of water down, so... TMI, fucking... everybody, but me and Heather and all the ladies have chronic bladder infections. <laughs> <laughs> they suck, and you have to... Yeah. Have to do something about it. Yeah, kidney failures. No, yeah, that's so. Dark. Yeah, it's it's very painful. Anyway. <laughs> oh, I'm uncomfortable. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 so, so Cromwell's body was interred at Westminster Abbey. His son Richard took over his protectorate, but he was not as apt militarily or politically as his father, and this lack of leadership plagued the protectorate after Cromwell's death, and it was overthrown. And the monarchy reestablished by loyalists and Charles II, Charles of her son, after the Third Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fucking crazy. <laughs> so Charles II had a real bug up his ass since his father was executed. And he wanted to make Cromwell and all involved in his father's death pay. Some, oh, of, the men, oh, yeah. some of the men were already dead, including Cromwell. But this did not stop Charles II from getting revenge on the regicides. So I tried to find like a, a primary source. I, I couldn't really find one, uh, but I did find a timeline of the events oh, that nice. are, are about to unfold. Yeah. So three regicides were disinterred: Cromwell, John Bradshaw, and Bradshaw. Henry Ireton. And Henry Ireton. <laughs> so Henry on January. Ireton. I- <laughs> so on January twenty sixth, sixteen sixty one. Cromwell and the other men's remains were removed from the resting places and moved to the Red Lion Inn in Holborn. On, Janu- on January 30th... Wait, who's, the- whose remains? Uh, so Cromwell, John Bradshaw, and Henry Ireton, who were all uh, kind of responsible for um, uh, Henry I's execution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or at least there's some of the men, like probably the, the bigger players. Right. Charles I's execution? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, because this is Charles II is getting revenge because they right. killed his dad. Right. Yeah. Do you guys see this like um, like a timeline, like like in a textbook? Or are you guys seeing like History Channel where it's like, and then they're like doing reenactments of like what's happening and stuff, and then they go back to the timeline? Well, at first I was seeing an encyclopedia, but now that you put it like that, oh man. Yeah, it makes it a lot more fun. It's whizzing through my head. <laughs> you just pan over and you accidentally see the sound guy like eating a donut yeah. oh, shit. <laughs> so on january 30th the bodies were hung on scaffolds at tyburn and this was done on the anniversary of charles the first execution some sources say that the bodies were drawn and quartered but all agree <laughs> that the bodies were taken down from the scaffolds and beheaded Ooh. Wait, how decomposed were they? Um, it would have been pretty pretty decomposed at that point. I mean, yeah. I think one of them was actually so decomposed that they couldn't it's... actually like hang them up on the scaffolds. I was gonna say they didn't even have to. 
<laughs> you didn't have to behead him. It just came off like <laughs> just, <laughs> just wrote. Like a fucking roast. Just like. You will put that head back on and fucking cut it off. And <laughs> we will have revenge. And he hits his chest and his fucking fist goes through the chest. <laughs> That's so fucking funny. (laughs) So it supposedly took eight blows to sever Cromwell's head. Yeah. So the bodies were thrown into an unmarked pit and the heads were placed on pikes and displayed above Westminster Hall, where Charles I was tried. Goodness. And there the heads remained for 28 years. I was going to say that sucks to live back then that that shit would just be around. Oh, I know. It's wild. But you'd have to go around and check out the heads and, I don't know, just like, oh, a crow took the eye. Or, yeah. yeah, you know that the there's some, out. some, like, I don't know, lowly, like, dung scooper guy that just goes, that's his favorite picnic spot. <laughs> Do you, you want to go? You want to go head spotting? Sometimes <laughs> when I get me grapes, it reminds me of the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, and Cromwell's head may have stayed up there longer if it wasn't for a storm that broke the pole holding his head and it sent it crashing down. If only the stick that held his head was as mighty as the neck it once had. (laughs) And it shattered into a thousand pieces. Surprisingly not. Surprisingly not, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, so many people believe a soldier found the head and kind of snatched it up because it wasn't seen at Westminster Abbey again. As you do. His so, teeth were still good, so we wanted them. Yep. <laughs> so his, actually, his head was like kind of pretty much mummified by that point. Yeah. 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 yeah, being out in the in the elements like that, for sure. Yeah, the sun, just bacon. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so somehow, whether it was the soldier or some other way, um, the head was given to Cromwell's daughter. And in the following centuries, the head would become a sideshow attraction, uh, changing ownership a few times and appear in appearing in many shows and exhibitions. Really, that happened so much back then. It's so yeah. crazy. Wait a second. Oh, hold on. So this would have been like <laughs> this would have been now like the sixteen seventies that all this head business happened, or like or sixties. Uh, so, so he was executed, in, or sorry, he, um, the, the whole, like, you know, posthumous, uh, execution happened in 1660, so it was up there for 28 years, so, I mean, it would have, I mean, almost been the 1700s by the time yeah. it uh, okay, came down, cool. yeah. Okay, and then the seven, the 18th century is when he, his ass would have, well, not his ass, but his head would have been carted around. He was a curiosity. I mean, it, it was basically, <laughs> it was in between then, it, it would have been, like, 1700s into the 18, actually into the 1900s. Yeah, man. Because it was finally purchased by Dr. Wilkinson in 1960, where it was donated to Sydney Sussex College and buried somewhere on the property in 1962. Could they ever prove? Well, they don't have dental records, Kate Weber. How can they ever prove? Hurting. My God. That's um, a lot of traveling. Yeah. I don't really know how they proved it. Um, I, I think they, they must have some way. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, it was like just a mummified head with a fucking like spike through it. Oh, yeah. Jesus. You can look up some old um, like advertisements for it, like at some of these shows. If you look them up, it's just like a kind of an etching or like a, just like like a sketch. Yeah. Really? It's just like, eh. yeah, oh, my yeah, God, could... if that head could talk. 
many people have tried to feed him booze or pudding or, you know, hang out. Used him as a puppet. Used him as a puppet. If only that head could talk. Oh, oh the fantastic. stories it would tell. Yep, yeah, so that was Oliver Cromwell. Yes, that was delightful. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's actually, it's really crazy because I had, I had heard about that too um, in college and yeah, it's just like, holy yeah. fuck, man. Because it's just weird. I mean, because it's like, it sound, you, you keep thinking it's like, it sounds like a normal trial, right? In the 1600s, yeah. get executed. But I mean, they dug up these bodies and did it. Like, they're just dead bodies, you know? It's 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 just wild. I really uh, love it because it makes me love the song even more now to know that that <laughs> shit got even more buck wild. Yeah, I I that must have been a thing because um my story takes place kind of uh, around the same time, a little bit before. Oh okay. So, so actually, yeah. that's funny. We'll we'll be kind of working our way back in time. Oh nice. This, this episode. <laughs> yep. So my guy is someone I've never heard of. Um, and his name is Gilles van Liedenberg. And he was a Dutch statesman who was posthumously executed after being tried for treason. He served from 1588 until his death in 1618. So quite a long career in, in politics. Yeah. Dude, I just want to say, like, some of the craziest shit I've ever heard in my life comes out of the 1500s. Yeah. Shit right? was fucking <laughs> nuts, dude. Oh, my God. Gnarly. Yeah. Yeah. So, born circa 1550, Liedenberg had an unremarkable upbringing. He was born into a Catholic family, and his father was a Mason by trade. However, after the iconoclasm of 1566, he switched to Calvinism. Now, iconoclasm is defined as the rejection or destruction of religious images as heretical, um, just in case our listeners didn't know. I'm sorry. What what was that again? Iconoclasm. Um, so, just to explain the the iconoclasm in 1566, uh, Netherlands, it was not just the result of doctrinal disagreement about the nature of religious imagery and the interpretation of biblical text. It was instead a response to intertwined issues of politics, religious oppression, and economic factors. It was one spark that helped ignite the flames of the Eighty Years' War, a war that ultimately resulted in the split between the northern Calvinist provinces of the Dutch Republic and southern Catholic province that remained connected to Spain. And that was Dr. Saskia Baranek. Uh, mm. That was her explanation of that. Because I really didn't know what the iconoclasm of 1566 was, so yeah, I, I mean, into that. Yeah, because, I mean, it's, it's quite a... I, the the big one that I remember hearing about was it during the Byzantine Empire. Um, yeah, I think I think this was actually during the reign of um, oh my god, brain fart. Like anyway, <laughs> he's like he's like one of the like most well known emperors of the Byzantine Empire. I mean this mm-hmm. is this is like late antiquity, early Middle Ages. So this is a T, right? Ah uh, man, I I really can't remember. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, but there was a huge um, kind of almost a schism um, due to the the issue of, of icons. Um, right. You know, it, it got to the point where where violence was breaking out all over Constantinople. Um, you know, some people, you know, Catholics wanted 
their icons to worship because it's part of ritual but then you know you have like one side that's like no you know that's idolatry and they'd go right. in and, and start smashing statues and stuff like that i right. remember hearing about and that and then of yeah. course the catholics have their big grand cathedrals with all this gold gilded shit and it just kind of compounds the problem yeah, I mean, and, and with the one that you're talking about, I mean, this is actually a couple decades after some of the big Anabaptist, like, I mean, essentially kind of wars um, or, you know, or persecutions um, where Catholic kind of rulers were going and, and kind of executing and killing Anabaptists. And one of their big things was they were iconoclasts. They, they were, or they at least didn't think uh, people should be worshiping idols. Right. And it wasn't that they didn't believe that these saints and and stuff shouldn't be shouldn't you know, um, be you know be held up as holy, but you know you, you shouldn't you should only be venerating God Jesus. Right, yeah, and it usually it, it has some pretty strong political. Um, oh yeah, especially during yeah during the these these times yeah. Yeah, yeah, the influence was great. <laughs> <laughs> so Liedenberg worked his way up in society through marriage. He, in fact, married three aristocratic women, accumulating Damn. wealth through these relationships, and he was said to have lived in luxury. He like, was at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it one after the <laughs> other. That would be quite a feat. <laughs> yeah, right. He was charismatic and became popular in arist- aristocratic circles. This, no doubt, helped him as he also worked his way up in the political ranks, becoming pensionary of the Netherlands province States of Utrecht States of Utrecht in 1588. Sorry, I just a lot of Dutch words here and I am <laughs> rubbish with Dutch. No, nope, I hear you. Now, I had no idea what a pensionary was. I had never heard of it before. So, I'm just going to kind of give a brief overview of what that is. Um, a pensionary was a permanent political seat unique to the Netherlands, originating in the 1400s, and the seat was abolished in the 1700s. And it's not really an easy thing to explain, but it can be compared to like a modern day prime minister. Oh, so so it's okay. So because you know it almost sounds like something kind of in the economic realm, but it's really more like a like a leader, like a political leader. Yeah, well, it's kind of like a jack of all trades in a sense. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, I mean, his functions included offering legal advice, conducting legal business, being the town council secretary, and acting as a spokesman at states' meetings. Oh, okay. So it was sort of almost administrative in a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it, it's really not any anything you can explain in modern political terminology. Oh, okay. But most importantly, this position was one of great influence. So this next part is extremely complicated. So I'm going to breeze through with limited historical political explanation, kind of like how your stories are. <laughs> it's just <laughs> just rabbit hole that's deeper than the fucking universe. It's no, crazy. it's it's true. Yeah, I mean, you, you need to, you know, you're trying to keep it grounded in the story, but it's like, well, there was something happened over here. And yeah. then this guy came in <laughs> over here and we're not even going to talk about over there. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So you got to really try to focus in. So, yeah. So I'm going to yeah. condense it. All right. Maybe clunkily, but we'll get there. <laughs> so I'm going to explain where Liedenberg's trouble began. And in this case, it was in his relationship with Johann Van Olden Barnevelt. 
And I probably totally butchered that. So sorry. Damn. Such fancy names. Yeah. <laughs> fancy boys. So Olden Barnevelt was Land's Advocate, or the Grand Pensionary of Holland. Olden Barnevelt's position was that of the highest political influence, and Liedenberg was a strong supporter of him. Now, during the Eighty Years' War, or also known as the Dutch War of Independence, and this was fought against Spain, a political tug-of-war was brewing. Tensions between Olden Barnevelt and Maurice of Orange were mounting. Maurice was not only the stadtholder, which is equivalent to like a duke or a count, of Holland and Zealand, but he was also captain general and admiral of the Union, so military leader. Mm. Firstly, Oldenbarnevelt signed the Twelve Years' Truce in 1609, which enacted 12 years of armistice, despite Maurice's advice against it. By signing the truce, this would strengthen his influence and the trade position of the Republic. Then, the two men were on different sides of the religious conflict between the Calvinist Gomorists and the Arminians. Not only that, but Oldenbarnevelt suspected that Maurice was planning a coup. This spurred spurred Oldenbarnevelt to convince the Republic leaders to adopt the Sharp Resolution, which, quote, stipulated that troops paid by Holland were also only allowed to obey the government of Holland. This meant that each city could hire their own soldiers to uphold order. Oh, so they could could hire mercenaries. Yeah. Mercenaries, basically. Basically, yes. Isn't that such a badass term? Mercenary. mercenary yeah mercenary <laughs> yeah no it's dude i oh my god i feel you dude like the early to late middle ages early renaissance it's so fucking complicated with all so the shit that's going, going on. on yeah, yeah. it's god, yeah. it's wild i would like smile and nod a lot <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well maurice was not having it He believed that the Sharp Resolution would negatively affect his role as commander-in-chief. So, Maurice decided to take action. Heading a band of troops, he worked his way through the cities of Holland, ordering the disbandment of the local militias. He made his way to Utrecht, which brings us back to poor Gilles Liedenberg. So he's just, like, going through, just, like, shooing people, like, go, get out of here. Yeah, he's like, "Lay, lay your arms down. This this is not this is not happening here. And then he smacked him with a broom. Yeah. <laughs> now, as mentioned before, Liedenberg was pensionary in Utrecht and was known was a known supporter of Van Oldenbarnevelt. There were meetings going on behind Maurice's back discussing opposition to what he was doing, and to make matters worse, when Maurice came to Utrecht, Gilles ordered his hotel be guarded by city soldiers. And this act was seen by Maurice as an attempt at intimidation. Liedenberg could see what was inevitably going to happen, and he got spooked. So he resigned, and he fled to Gouda for a short while, where he collected himself. Oh, and ate a lot of cheese. Yeah, for real. <laughs> now, upon his return to Utrecht, he arrived in time to be placed under house arrest, and also in time for Maurice's coup, which went through. In August of 1618, Maurice had Oldenbarnevelt and a handful of other politicians, along with Liedenberg, arrested to be tried for treason. Liedenberg was locked away at Binnenhof at The Hague. However, his son was allowed to accompany him. 
Unfortunately, his preliminary investigation was conducted by his political enemy, and Liedenberg was threatened by this man to be tortured on the rack. This sent him into a tizzy, and likely influenced what happened next. On September 28th or 29th of 1618, Liedenberg took a kitchen knife and slit his own throat. Ooh. The note he left with his son explained that he hoped by his suicide it would prevent forfeiture of his possessions. But this act did not stop him from going on trial. <laughs> he was tried along with the other conspirators in a kangaroo court and was sentenced to death and forfeiture on May 12, 1619, along with Oldenbarnevelt. So, so uh, is, he the, he's, is he the only one that's dead on this trial? Yes, as far as I know, because they captured all the other men alive, but he killed himself. So, so they're they're like weekend at birdieing. <laughs> Both care, you know, two people are carrying mm-hmm. him. <laughs> I think he was actually buried at this point. Oh, but I see. We'll, we'll get to that. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> so Oldenbarnevelt was beheaded on May thirteenth, sixteen nineteen. But how were they to execute a dead man? Well, they weren't going to miss out on the sentence. So they did the only logical thing. Liedenberg's embalmed body was dragged out in its coffin and hung from a half-gallows for 21 days. After the 21 days had passed, the coffin was taken down and he was buried in a churchyard. But that very same night, a mob dug up his body and threw it into a ditch. (laughs) (laughs) This caused the Dutch court to order an injunction from further attacks against Liedenberg's body. And eventually, Liedenberg was secretly buried elsewhere and was allowed to rest peacefully. Well, thank God they got a hold of him after that shit. They <laughs> even bury him somewhere else. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that, it's it's like, like envision a dog like, taking his arm away, and they're like, well, we did the best we could. <laughs> Just threw it in a ditch. Like... <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was uh, the story of, of Gilles Liedenberg. That one's Dang. actually that one's got a couple of parallels to yep. to, to the last one. Yeah. Do you it think does. it's more pleasant to slit your own wrist than be executed? Uh, I guess it depends on how you get executed, right? Yeah. He, yeah. He, he went for the throat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'd rather do that. Yeah. I mean, if uh, it just depends on like what your punishment might be. I well, mean, in the, if it's in yeah. the Middle Ages or, or you know early Renaissance, then. Probably if, would want to slit your throat. <laughs> if you think you're going on the rack, then yeah. Yeah. Totally. Because, I mean, yeah. like, during this time, they love to draw on quarter people. <laughs> so They and love racks then, and they and, love them now. Yeah, dude. So. <laughs> it's different kinds. <laughs> different kinds. Man, right. rack, racks never <laughs> get <right>. old. <laughs> Holy man. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, so my last one is actually... Probably the craziest thing I've ever heard. This is the one that that made me want to do this episode. Oh boy, oh boy, I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's it's actually like I don't know if a lot of people know about it. Um, it's it's relatively well known. Um, if you're into like papal history, you know, I just want to say that I just started watching Hellraiser right before this, and I had I haven't seen it since I was a kid, mm-hmm. and. I was looking at the loogie, you know, jism corpse that was coming out of the ground. <laughs> and I must say this discussion has really added to my evening. So thank you with all oh. these shambling corpses. Oh, I know. That's not Amazing. even not even over yet. Mm, yeah. 
All right, strap in for this one. <laughs> the trial of Pope Formosus, which is also called the Cadaver Synod. And a synod is just an assembly of clergy and like other church dignitaries. Ooh, so the trial of Pope Formosus is often said to be one of the events that marked a period in the Catholic Church and the papacy, sometimes called the pornocracy or rule of prostitutes, which would last for almost a century in the 900 CE. That's Scandalous. so crazy. I just saw a documentary title last night called Pornocracy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, sorry, just one more thing, too, which no, is funny. We, we, were, um, we were watching Jeopardy, uh-huh. <laughs> not yesterday, but the day before, and one of the answers was uh, Maurice of Orange. And we were like, mm-hmm. huh, that's a weird, that's a weird uh, prince. And, and then, then you just talked about it. And then it. I I was came across him and I was like, honey. That's so it's Prince so of Orange. <laughs> Had I been on Jeopardy after this episode, I totally would have nailed it. <laughs> would have nailed it. Not at all. Not even a little bit. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> oh, you're good. <laughs> no, that's 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 nuts. That's so funny. Yeah. So um uh everybody knows who Charlemagne is, right? He's the like eighth century king of the Carolingian Empire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And cool. he was I, he was crazy, right? Well it's called Charlemagne the Great. Um well no actually a lot of people say well the great the, yeah Charlemagne Charlemagne the Great crazy yep. confused. No. <laughs> <laughs> Although his sons and grandsons will have very funny names. But um no so yeah so Charlemagne was like the king of the Carolingian Empire um you know in, in sort of the early Middle Ages and uh, he was crowned Holy Roman Emperor and there really hadn't been a Roman oh, Emperor yes, for yes, a while yes. he also killed a lot of pagans like a fuckload of pagans That's right. in Ooh. one of the primary sources he beheaded like thousands like very systematically in like a day or two yeah Jeez Louise yep. I think he just needed to hear the song Cheer Up, Charlie. (laughs) I think he was pretty (laughs) cheerful. So after Charlemagne's death in 814 CE, the Carolingian Empire began to fracture and weaken. By 877, Charles the Bald, grandson of Charlemagne, was struggling to keep an already fracturing empire together. And after his death, things just got even more complicated. Already fracturing hairline, too, from what it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) So Charles the Fat, who's the great-grandson of Charlemagne, was crowned Holy Roman Emperor in 881, and through sheer luck he was able to unite the broken empire. But this would be the last time the empire was united. Charles was he the Fat throwing big banquets. Um he was just uh, <laughs> the way they make him sound is like he's just like a I don't know. Some some sources make him sound like he's just basically like a bumbling fat guy. He's just like, yeah. burr, 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 just bumping into stuff. <laughs> yeah. So Charles the Fat was inept, and the empire was too large for him to govern. And not only this, but Viking and Muslim raids were disrupting the empire. So you had like, and this is like prime Viking raiding time. So like Vikings are coming in from the north. Muslims are coming in from like Africa and Spain. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Magyars coming in from the steppes, like kind of near the east, uh, East Europe. So they're just like, it's just all kinds of raiders going all over Europe, just like fucking things up. So, so Charles the Fat made a huge mistake when instead of protecting Paris from a horde of Vikings, he paid them a ransom and let them go raid Burgundy instead. Dang. Now, do you think he spells uh, fat with an F or a PH? 
<laughs> I feel like there's some linguistic joke there, but I just, I can't remember. <laughs> Charles is fat. <laughs> How come nobody writes it like that? I don't get it. <laughs> so because of this, he was deemed a coward and deposed in 887, and he would die the following year. So without a clear successor and the hung- and the hunger for power from some of the smaller kings, the empire split into different parts as rulers created their own smaller kingdoms. So this would really kick off the tumultuous and dark period for the papacy as all of these kings tried to use and influence the pope in Rome to cement their own positions of power. And this was because the papacy was seen as the legitimate body who could coronate a king to the position of Holy Roman Emperor. Um, and that was sort of like Charlemagne kind of, you know, established that a little bit. Right. But as Michael Edward Moore writes in his publication, The Body of Formosus, this was often more of a curse than a blessing, as these popes are often at the center of violent politics. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, it, and it, gets, it just gets turns into a bloodbath at this point, basically. Yeah. But let's back up a bit. So Formosus had served under Pope Nicholas I and was the Bishop of Portus. Nicholas had sent Formosus to Bulgaria to try and bring the Bulgarians into the Roman Catholic Church, as they were still a pagan kingdom. Formosus was very successful in the king of Bulgaria, a man named Boris, had requested that Formosus be made archbishop of their new church. Many objected to this back in Rome, not only for political reasons, but it was also, it was also a lot of power for Formosus to have. Um, and there was also a restriction against translation, which is essentially um, where it's essentially a transfer of a bishop from one Episcopal see to another. And, and so an Episcopal see is basically like a bishop's ecclesiastical jurisdiction. So you couldn't transfer from one to the other. It was sort of a restriction okay. against that. Um, and in the past, this was like really not enforced too heavily, but on this occasion, and maybe because Formosus and Nicholas had enemies inside and outside Rome, it languished in debate. And as a result, the Bulgarians went with the Byzantine church instead. So they lost, like, basically all Bulgaria to, to the Eastern Byzantine Empire. Which, you know, the Byzantine Empire had kind of controlled a lot of the Western um, arena, and around this time, that's when everything starts to fracture and they and they begin to split into two. And the West, which was used to be the, the Western Roman Empire, um, starts to kind of get a little more of its clout back and starts to push the Byzantine rulers away. Oh, okay. So when Nicholas I died, he was succeeded by John VIII, who, and dude, and these Pope names get so confusing. Oh, my God. So, sorry. So, when Nicholas I died, he was succeeded by John VIII, who was an enemy of both Formosus and Nicholas I. John VIII deposed and excommunicated Formosus on the grounds that he had conspired with the king of Bulgaria to become their bishop, and that he also coveted the papacy, as well as being a traitor. Oh, shit. So, John VIII ended up being assassinated not long after this, and he was succeeded by Marianus, or... Marinus the first Marinus maybe Marinus thank you and was succeeded by Marinus the first who dropped all the charges against Formosus and reinstated him after three popes in less than 20 years Formosus was elected pope in October of 891 jeez yes yeah it's a lot of 
Wait, yeah, rough. it's a lot of popes. Yeah. One of these popes, actually, I think he only he has like the second shortest reign. It was like less than two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Bummer. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, Formosus had achieved this through making his kind of his own like party somewhat within the church. Um, and he had like a lot of supporters behind him, but he also had a lot of enemies. So Pope Formosus had made an enemy of Guy III of Spoleto, and he was the previous king of Italy and now the Holy Roman Emperor. He was crowned emperor by the previous pope, Stephen V, um, in 891. Stephen. Steve. Steve the <laughs> So Formosus did not trust or support Guy, and when Formosus became Pope in late 891, after Stephen V died, Formosus then worked to push Guy out of Italy by enlisting Arnulf of Carinthia, king of East Francia, to invade Italy and push Guy away from Rome. Goodness. For his help in getting rid of Guy, Formosus crowned Arnulf the new emperor of Rome in 896. Holy so, shit. Yeah, a lot, a lot like happens. Some like Catholic Game of Thrones going on. Oh, actually, it's a that's <laughs> a pretty good approximation. <laughs> it would be short lived though, as Formosus Formosus died only a few months later after the coronation. He was buried in a Roman church. His successor, Boniface the Sixth, was pope for only fifteen days before he died of gout. That's uh, that was the guy I was talking about. Oh no. <laughs> Oh, so no. His replacement was a real dickhead named Stephen VI, a rival of Formosus. Emperor Arnolf. Um, Steve. Yeah. Emperor Arnolf <laughs> suffered a stroke and died in December 899. So now, you know, that the, the one kind of champion that Formosus would have had on his side is, is dead now. That, oh, so. yeah. So much like Charles II with Oliver Cromwell, Pope Stephen VI could not just let Formosus rest. And it isn't clear why Stephen hated Formosus so much. Maybe it was political or maybe it was personal. Uh, we just don't really know. But in January of 897, he had Formosus's body removed from its crypt, dressed in its ecclesiastical vestments and garbs, and then propped him up in the papal throne to stand trial. He had been dead for six to nine months by uh, by this point. Ooh, especially squishy and gross. Yeah, uh, wow. you hear you hear six or seven most of the time months, but I, I've also seen nine, so it's it's somewhere in between there. Yeah, yeah. it's still the same amount of of gross. Oh yeah, it's it's all kinds of gross. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll Wait, get into. So that. they have to be dead six or seven months before they decide to put them on trial. No, no, no. This is unprecedented. No one's ever done oh. this before. Get so him Stephen, out here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, so they drag him out, dress him in his old in his old like papal clothing and gross. put him up on Girdle a throne. Everything. <laughs> uh, so, it's probably all leaky and green and just Oh, we'll we'll get to that. Yay. He's got his his pretty red brassiere on still. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So Stephen, Pope Stephen acted as the prosecutor while a young deacon defended Formosus. Now, keep in mind during this whole thing, the room is packed with ecclesiastic members and dignitaries watching this essentially mock trial of a corpse. Yeah. Stephen accused Formosus of conspiracy, perjury, treason, breaking canon law, and coveting the papacy, among many other things. <laughs> Stephen wanted to make Formosus pay, and since he had been dead for several months by this point, tarnishing his legacy would suffice. 
<laughs> From some sources, it's said that Pope Stephen shouted and hurled insults at the corpse, all while demanding he answer. That's exactly what I was picturing. That's why I was laughing. Wow. <laughs> and while this is going on, the deacon is pretty much pretending to speak as Formosus behind him to, like, answer the questions. No. No. He'd be like, okay. he'd be like did you or did you not covet the papacy, you vile? And he'd be like, no, buddy, it wasn't me. <laughs> so wait, does he? What does he look like in your head right now? Like, what does Famosus's face look like? To me, he's just like, like a grimace. <laughs> like his mouth is like way open. Yeah, it's probably like probably kind of open. Um, I mean, like it's it's a quite a sight to behold. I, I yeah. I mean, nothing like this has ever ever been done. Ugh. It's crazy. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> So this spectacle must have looked quite insane to everyone present. It wasn't that a posthumous trial had never happened. It's just no one had ever ever actually brought a corpse into the trial, like into the courtroom. Yeah. So also keep in mind that Formosus had been dead for several months and by this point would have been in deep stages of decay and putrefaction. Um, I think somebody said mm-hmm. it's called like stage three, like decay um, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like he would have been you know possibly would have had some maggots on him you know like i said putrefying so like his underclothes would have been probably just like melded to him basically Leaking. yeah he would have been wet yeah. and gross maybe a little bloated um so it was it was probably Stinky really gross fuck. yeah there's actually there's a famous painting if you look it up it's it's the like first thing that usually pops up um it's a yeah, painting from the 1800s cool. by like a yeah. french um, artist yeah it's it's very what? cool but he makes what him look. Called? Excuse me. Uh, it's just the the cadaver synod. Yes. It's pretty cool though. Yeah, yeah. It's a actually really beautiful painting. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking crazy looking though. It's neat. Uh, he doesn't make it as gross as it probably would have been though. No. Yeah, and I mean, I was just thinking they probably smelled nearly as bad as he did already. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. That's true. Really. Yeah. That's true. So historian George Ives describes the scene as such. Quote. The old man's body, like a monstrous doll, might nod and bend while the attendants supported it or collapse in a ghastly bundle if they left it alone, but it made no sound, and the deacon would probably be wary in his defense, for there were dark holes nearby, other than sepulchers. Unquote. Whew. So during oh, the trial, it's said that an earthquake shook the room, uh, which was like <laughs> taken as a clear sign from God that this was super fucked up. Yeah. Um, and as a later chronicler writes, quote, for the stones themselves execrating such a monstrosity, then cried out with their own voice by knocking against each other, that they would more willingly suffer spontaneous ruin than that the Roman church should remain depressed by so great a scandal, unquote. That is so goofy with yeah. the goddamn <laughs> earthquake and a corpse. And like, yeah, and I know. Yeah. So whether or not this actually happened or it was just a bit of embellishment by a contemporary, um, Stephen VI pressed on with his case and Formosus was found guilty of usurping the papacy. Oh, no. So Stephen... Didn't see that coming. Yeah, I know. It's just, yeah. I mean, and that was kind of like the important thing of this trial, right? It wasn't necessarily the trial. It was kind of like who was there in the room. Um, of course yeah yeah it's all I mean, performative bullshit yeah it, it really is it, but it's also like kind of insane i bet even, oh it's totally yeah. crazy yeah. yeah it's just just like you, <laughs> you, you were 
You wonder about like yeah, Stephen's like mental health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, actually, and, and there's a really funny. I, I came across it. There's a really funny like college humor animated series called What the Fuck 101, and oh. it's basically like the Magic School Bus with really fucked up like science and history and nature facts. Oh, fun! It's actually it's really really well done. But they actually do um, this this story like a little four minute. Is bit it on, on YouTube? It. Yeah, you can find it. It's it's really well done. It's really funny. I would definitely recommend watching Fantastic. it after. Mm-hmm. Cool. I'll check it out. Yep. So anyway, um, so Stephen, quote, declared all his acts as Pope null and void. All consecrations, all appointments, and all ordinations were undone. For Moses' body was stripped of its rich garments and dressed in rags. Three of his fingers, the fingers of the benediction with which in life he had given blessings, were cut off. And his body was cast into the Tiber River. That seems like a waste of everyone's fucking time. Yeah. <laughs> that's oh, well you, think, you think that's a waste of time. The funny <laughs> thing is. They put that... him in rags that he's already shit in his pants and Un- melted in. Undo all the things that he did. Send somebody else out there. So the yeah. funny thing is that actually Stephen, he actually first had Formosus buried in a commoner's graveyard. But then he changed his mind and had him thrown into the Tiber. Well, he just uh, seems full of great ideas, this yeah. Steven, Stevie. <laughs> Stevie. So uh, casting a body into the Tiber River had been a cherished pastime of Rome, going all the <laughs> way back to the Roman Republic. Um, it not only humiliated and desecrated the body by refusing it a resting place, but worked to carry the condemned out of Rome. Kind of just oh. down the river. Jeez. Um, in this get instance, that piece of shit out of here. Yeah, get the fuck drunk. Get the, push that turd down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like have him over the bridge. They're just like woo 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 woo. <laughs> so, uh, in this instance with Formosus, it also worked to get rid of the body so that his followers could not have it to venerate, as popes and saints' bodies would become holy relics. Mm-hmm. So fortunately for Formosus' body, it was fished out of the Tiber by a monk and secretly buried at his monastery. Whatever the reason for this trial, it divided the politics of Rome even more, if that was possible. An insurrection ensued, and Pope Stephen was thrown into prison, where he was soon strangled to death. (laughs) The following centuries would be a time of great shame for the papacy. A pope not long after annulled the cadaver synod, cleared uh, Formosus of guilt, and had his body buried in St. Peter's Basilica. And where the fuck are they? I don't know how there's anything left to bury. <laughs> a pope after that, who had taken part in the cadaver synod, had that one overturned. So he's guilty again. And that this ruling was overturned later. Waste. Yep, and up till today. Um, the cadaver synod was seen as sadistic, illegal, and a black mark on the Catholic Church. Oh, my God. Yep. And wow. that's it. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. That's crazy. What a bunch nuts. of fuckery. I never heard of that in my entire life. Yeah, I um, I hadn't really heard of it before, you know, hearing about it in, the, in the, that college course. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's like, just um, imagine it. That's you know? bananas. Like, yeah, all, it's that's like, very... The, the seriousness and the grandeur of, of the Roman Catholic Church of the ninth century, you know, and it's just like 
it's just so ridiculous. It's it's just he just like ha- he's just a mound of ash with eyeballs in my head now. Like that's all that's left. <laughs> but he's still just... got his pretty clothes. Oh no, if they put him in commoner's clothes, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, they took his robes. I wonder what I they did even... with those. Why didn't they just like he's fucking dead? Why don't you just make him naked if you really want to? Oh, that's Jesus. that's that's obscene. Scandalous. That's too far. That's too really. far. That's too, too far, yeah. <laughs> We're not monsters. We gotta draw the line somewhere. That's funny. Uh, yeah, that's that was a fun classy. one. Yeah. yeah, that was a really interesting episode. I really enjoyed yeah. those stories. Yeah, it was definitely more of a Gross. like very you know brief history lessons, but um Yeah. We're probably gonna have nightmares yeah. tonight. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, no, watch the what the fuck 101 thing and it'll make it like all animated and cute and funny. I love it. Okay. I won't I can't wait to watch it. So yeah, I got I got nothing else. Yeah. I don't I mean, either. I mean, how do you follow that? I think just with Bon Jovi's wanted dead or alive, that's all you can do. <laughs> hey, play us out, Bon Jovi. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so I guess we should do socials. Yeah. So you can follow us on Facebook at Under the Pendulum Podcast, on Instagram at Under Pendulum Podcast, on Twitter at Pendulum underscore pod, on TikTok at Under the Pendulum, and you can find all our episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, the iHeartRadio app, or almost anywhere else you listen to your pods. You can find me, Heather, Facebook, Heather Thomas, Instagram, h.n.thomas, Twitter at Heather W. Thomas. And you can find my narrations on Creepy, Tales to Terrify, and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. And you can find me on Instagram under Fothy Stardog. And you can find me on Instagram by searching for Christopher Weber 13V and on Facebook by searching for Christopher Weber. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. All right, cool. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with another one, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. You're guilty. <laughs> 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 <laughs>